0: Take your Bibles this morning, turn once more to the book of Exodus. We're going to be bouncing around a good bit today, but we're going to begin in chapter 14, Exodus 14, looking particularly at verse 4. Here's what it says. Exodus 14, verse 4. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his host. and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you are the king. The only thing that keeps us sane in this broken world is the knowledge that you are in control that all things work together for good to those who love you that doesn't just happen it happens because you make it happen we praise you for that be with us this morning may your spirit illuminate our hearts we ask in jesus name amen we have been working our way through the book of exodus Most recently, last week, we saw the Israelites as they came to the Red Sea and their crossing of the Red Sea. We saw them crossing through on dry ground. We saw God performing a great miracle and, uh, and creating walls of water. It says the Israelites went through with a wall of water on their right and on their left. And, and, and they were saved in that day. And they saw the Egyptians follow them through. And we saw God again working mightily. Bringing the walls of water back down on the Egyptians. And destroying Egypt. Bringing judgment on the Egyptians and on their gods. God triumphing over the Egyptians in plague after plague prior to that. And the implication of all of it has been simply this that god is sovereign over all and he wants the entire world to know it we see that in the verse that we just read in, in exodus 14 verse 4 i will get glory over pharaoh and all the egyptians will know that i am the lord he says it in, in a little bit later in the chapter as well and he says not only does he want all the egyptians to know that he is the lord and to get glory in the eyes of the egyptians but his purpose in all of this has been to show the world that all the nations that all the world may know that one of the things that God has been doing all along. And so we think it's appropriate at this point in our study of Exodus just to pause and, uh, and hunker down a little bit and drill down deep on this simple idea that God is in sovereign control over all things, that God is king over all. That God is worthy of glory and majesty because he is the king over all. And so we're going to spend time considering that this morning. This is um, what I'm calling a meditation on the sovereignty of God. That is to say we're not uh, exegeting one passage of scripture, but we're thinking about an idea that we've seen in various ways throughout the chapters of Exodus that we've been looking at so far. And the reason we're doing this is twofold. The reason we're spending time talking about the sovereignty of God this morning is is twofold. First, because I know this reality is a hard one to swallow for many of us. And so it needs time to unpack when we read God saying, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. That's one that gives us pause, doesn't it? And so it it deserves some time to talk about. And so that's one reason, uh, because it's a hard idea for us to swallow. That's one reason that we're spending time talking about it this morning. The second reason is because I think... Has been unpacked a little bit. I really believe that it has the power to cause us to rejoice. Believe it or not. But that only happens. That, That rejoicing in the sovereignty of God is only going to happen when we learn to look at it from the perspective given here, the perspective of God's glory. I will get glory over Pharaoh. When we learn to see this idea of God's sovereignty from the perspective of God's glory, then we will be able to rejoice in it. And so that's what I want to lay before you this morning. The doctrine of God's sovereignty over the human heart has the power to lead us to rejoice if we focus more on his very real glory and less on our very imaginary rights. We're going to put that before you this morning. The doctrine of God's sovereignty over the human heart has the power to lead us to rejoice if we focus more on his glory and less on our rights. And so we're just going to talk about those two ideas this morning. First, we're going to talk about God's sovereignty over the human heart. We're going to talk about what we mean by that and how we see it in these pages. And then we're going to suggest some reasons about why this doctrine should lead us to rejoice. That's what we're going to do in the time remaining this morning. The doctrine of God's sovereignty over the human heart has the power to lead us to rejoice if we focus more on his glory and less on our rights. Consider, then, God's sovereignty over the human heart. And, of course, we begin with the, the verse that we just looked at, Exodus 14:4. 4, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And we're familiar with God saying that at this point in the story. In fact, if you went through Exodus 4 through 14... Uh, which is actually the, the, the text um, spectrum that I've given you for our, our message today. If you were to spend time going through those 10, 11 chapters, you would see that there are 10 times where God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. 10 times. If you want them, listen, jot down the references. You see it in Exodus 4:21. You see it in Exodus 7, 3, Exodus 9.12, Exodus 10, 1, Exodus 10.20, Exodus 10.27, Exodus 11.10, Exodus 14.4, Exodus 14.8, Exodus 14.17. Yeah, I know. Come and ask me later. I'll give them to you again. <laughs> Ten times. God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, along with that, we also see statements where we read that Pharaoh hardened his own heart we see that too we see that in places like Exodus 8.15 and Exodus 8.32 and Exodus 9.34 at least three times if we were playing a math game we could say okay we got ten times you know God hardens Pharaoh's heart we got three times Pharaoh hardened Zoe's heart. own heart so I guess the God hardening Pharaoh's heart wins but that's not how we read scripture right that's not how we read Scripture. We have to wrestle with both of these statements, don't we? And then, just to complicate things a little bit more, we also have statements where uh, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is just given in a passive form. It doesn't say who did it, it; just says it happened. His heart was hardened. And you have about five times where where you see that occurrence: Exodus seven thirteen, Exodus seven twenty two, Exodus eight nineteen, Exodus nine seven, Exodus nine thirty five. Get all those. So the point is this: we have Pharaoh's heart hard. And we're left asking the question, what caused it? Why is Pharaoh's heart hard? Or, given the the thesis statement that I just opened with a few moments ago, we could ask the question a little bit differently. Why should we conclude that God is sovereign over Pharaoh's heart? Since we have these different kinds of statements, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, his heart was hardened. Why should we conclude from all of this, That God is sovereign even over the human heart. Well, there's a lot of ways that we can try to make sense of all of this together. There's a lot of ways that we can try to make sense of these different statements. And um, frankly, there there, there are too many for us to spend a lot of time talking about each one of them this morning. And So I'm going to summarize them in two forms. There's two major options for how we can read these verses. One option is to consider that God, uh, when it says that he hardened Pharaoh's heart, what it means is that he was looking forward in in time and he saw that Pharaoh would harden his own heart and then merely added his own condemnation onto the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. In other words, this option of, of reading these verses says that ultimately it is Pharaoh who is responsible for his heart being hard. And that the verses that say that God hardened Pharaoh's heart are are ways of speaking about God's um, judgment on Pharaoh or God's condemnation of Pharaoh for his rebellion or God's confirmation of Pharaoh in his hardening of his heart. Now, th- this this option uh, is attractive in a lot of ways. For one, it makes Pharaoh alone responsible for his destiny. And it absolves God of any perceived culpability in in the situation, doesn't it? But I want to suggest to you four reasons why that option just won't work in the long run. First, I think it ignores the entire context of Exodus, in which God is seeking to emphasize and illustrate his power and authority over Egypt. The whole power encounter throughout Exodus 4 through 14 It's showing us one thing. It's showing the Israelites one thing, that God is in control. So any option which says that that God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart is merely God's response to Pharaoh's choice, I think is missing the entire thrust of the passage as a whole. Second reason I don't think this option holds up is that it ignores the biblical reality that since the fall, there is no such thing as a morally neutral human being. In other words, in, in, the, in, the, in the wings of this option of saying that Pharaoh is ultimately responsible for his own hardening of his heart, in the wings of that option is this idea that before this, this crisis point in Pharaoh's life, he was kind of a morally neutral state, and when he was then presented with the idea of letting God's people go, he had the option of either rebelling against God or obeying God, and he made the wrong choice as though he were in some kind of a morally neutral position. Now, we might not say it in quite that way, but that's that's lying behind this idea. We want to believe that Pharaoh had the option of choosing one way or the other, but the biblical portrait of humanity since the fall is that none of us is morally neutral, right? We are all unrighteous. There is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. All our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Right? And so we, whatever else we do with these verses, however else in our minds we choose to reconcile the idea that God hardens Pharaoh's heart and that Pharaoh hardens his own heart, however we choose to reconcile those ideas, we must be careful not to allow that error to creep into our thinking, that he was in some kind of a morally neutral state and just made the wrong choice. A third reason that I think this this option of interpretation misses the, the, the boat, is that it ignores the biblical insistence that God's acts are never based on mere foresight. We're not denying that God has foresight. We're not denying that God has foreknowledge. Uh, that, that's a doctrine that's related to God's omniscience. God knows all things. He knows the ends from the beginning. Yeah? He, he knows all things. He, he, he looks forward in time, if you want to put it that way. He sees all things. So we're not denying that. But in Scripture, the idea that God knows all things and, and, and foresees all things is, is tied closely to the fact that God is the prime mover in all things. God knowing something is not God being intellectually aware of something, it's God determining something. Or, to put it another way, when we speak about God knowing things ahead of time, we're not just saying that God uh, looks ahead in time and sees something that happens independent of him. Rather, we're saying that God is the, is the objective mover in all things. There's nothing that happens independently of God. But finally, I think uh, the most compelling reason to, to, to let go of this option for, for interpreting these verses is simply that it just doesn't solve the problem anyway. It just pushes it down the line a little bit. And here's what I mean. Eventually, regardless of how you parse the God hardening Pharaoh's heart and the Pharaoh hardening his own heart versus however you parse them, eventually you have God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Even if Pharaoh is the one who does it first, even if Pharaoh in some kind of freedom of, of, of action chooses rebellion first, eventually you have God hardening Pharaoh's heart unless you just discount those statements altogether. And if eventually you have God hardening Pharaoh's heart, then you're left with the idea that that there's a a man out there who, if God hadn't hardened his heart, maybe would have made a different decision, right? Maybe if God hadn't hardened his heart, Pharaoh would have changed his mind and repented. And so, in other words, saying that Pharaoh is, is the one who makes the first move here doesn't really solve the problem for us, does it? It just pushes it down the line. A little bit. We're still left with the idea that God is doing something in sovereignty over the human heart that makes us feel uncomfortable. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? The second option, then, is that we trust that that God actually did what the Bible says he does. He makes Pharaoh's heart hard. He hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, the reason that option is unattractive to us is because it seems to make God culpable for Pharaoh's sin. Doesn't it? It makes him responsible for Pharaoh's destiny, which we don't like, because his destiny isn't a good one. We don't like the idea that Pharaoh is not responsible for his own destiny, and the reason we don't like the idea that Pharaoh is not responsible for his own destiny is because we don't like the idea that we are not responsible for our own destiny. We like the poem Invictus, right? William Ernest Henley, you're familiar with this, you'll remember it. Out of the night that covers me black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud under the bludgeonings of chance. My head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. That's a great poem. That's great. It's just garbage. It's not true, is it? But there's something, there's something in our hearts that, that resonates with it, right? We are in charge. We want to be in charge. And so the idea that we are not in charge of our own destiny, in charge of our own fate, rankles. But there's reasons, biblically, why I think we have to conclude that this is the best way of thinking about this. God repeatedly insists that while he is not culpable for our sin, he is responsible for our destiny. I want to read to you several passages of scripture to help us see this. This is what I mean when I say this is a meditation. Okay? I don't expect you to, to write down all these references. If you want to look them up later, you can come in and get my notes and I'll, I'll help you get the references down so that you can look them up and study them at more leisure later. But right now, I just encourage you to listen to the word of the Lord consider God's revelation of his sovereignty. In Isaiah the prophet we read these words Isaiah 46 8 through 10. God says remember this and stand firm recall it to mind you transgressors remember the former things of old for I am God and there is no other I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done saying my counsel shall stand I will accomplish all my purpose. These words speak not just to God knowing the end from the beginning but to him declaring, proclaiming, ordaining, determining, purposing. Or we could recall the the words of the, of the teacher in Proverbs 16.9, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 21.1, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. God is sovereign over the human heart. Jeremiah the prophet writes, I know, Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, That it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. (laughs) What a simple illustration of God's sovereignty over our hearts, our intentions, our actions. Or we could, of course, turn to Paul's exposition of this story in Exodus. When Paul wants to speak to the Roman uh, Christians about God's sovereignty in the gospel, he uses the example of the Exodus, doesn't he? Listen to Paul's writing in Romans 9, verses 14 through 24. He says, what shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? From the Gentiles. God is sovereign. As Paul looks back at the story of the Exodus. As Paul considers what God does in the heart of Pharaoh. Paul's conclusion is that God does whatever he wants. God is sovereign. Now. What does this not mean? When we say that God is sovereign over the human heart. What does that not mean? It does not mean that humans are not responsible for their actions, does it? The weight of scripture will not allow us to draw that conclusion. The fact that God is sovereign over the human heart does not mean that humans are not responsible for their actions. Pharaoh is responsible for his own actions. I think this is the reason, after all, that Moses insists on saying, even after he says so many times, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, he also says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Because as Moses thinks about what was going on in Pharaoh's life, he doesn't just see God pulling the strings of a puppet. He sees a man in responsibility acting in rebellion against God. So when we say that God is sovereign over the human heart, we do not mean that humans have no responsibility for their actions. Nor do we mean that God ordains all things in a deterministic fashion such that humans don't have the freedom to choose and do whatever their hearts want. Friends, listen to me. You can do whatever you want. God's sovereign determination of all things, God's sovereignty over your heart, does not mean that you can't do what you want. I think our understanding of our freedom to do what we want is flawed in many ways, but that's outside the scope of this sermon. But rest assured, you are not a robot, you are not a puppet on a string. When we say that God is sovereign over the human heart, that is not what we mean. What we do mean is that God is entirely sovereign, even over the workings of the human heart. What we mean is that when we say God is sovereign, we don't, we're not saying he's sovereign over everything else except the human heart. He's sovereign over everything except the intentions of your mind. No, we mean God is sovereign over all that he has created. He's sovereign over our hearts. The doctrine of God's sovereignty over the human heart has the power to lead us to rejoice if we will let it, if we will focus more on his very real glory and less on our imaginary rights. And that's where the rubber meets the road for us, I suspect. Because we hear this doctrine of God being sovereign over our hearts and it, and it bugs us. We struggle with it. How can we possibly rejoice in this idea that there is a sovereign God and that he ordains all things, including the things in life that we don't like? Let me suggest to you six reasons why this doctrine of God's sovereignty over the human heart should lead us to rejoice. Six reasons. Number one because it fosters a childlike faith in God's care. When we understand that God is sovereign over the human heart, when we embrace that truth, it can foster in us a childlike faith in God's care. Jesus, as he he preaches to the disciples in the crowds in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 6, he says this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And as that message goes on, Jesus points them to the flowers of the field and says their heavenly Father clothes them. And he says, don't worry about the food and and the clothes. Your heavenly Father knows that you need those things. And so Jesus, as he paints this picture for his listeners, is telling them, consider God's sovereignty. Consider God's care. He clothes the grass of the field. He feeds the birds of the air. He knows your needs. You can trust him. You can rest in him. You can trust him the way a child trusts its parent. Here's something interesting. C- consider, if you're a parent, if you've had children, or, or even if not, you remember when you were a child, consider the, the implicit trust that a child has that the parent will care for their needs. Right? Do you have that image in your mind, that trust in the parent? But Do you ever remember worrying because your parents were worried about finances? Now your answer to that might be different. Some of you might be very aware of your parents struggling and being worried about finances and and you felt that worry too. Or maybe you struggle with finances or worry about finances and you know that your kids have have known that worry too. So our answers to that might be different. But the reason for my pointing it out is this. Children at a certain age implicitly trust their parents to take care of their needs even when their parents are worried about things themselves. In other words, there's a sense in which a child's trust in its parents is foolish. I mean, in a sense, right? Their parents might not be able to provide all their needs, but the children still trust them. Right? And if a child can trust the parents' needs, even when the parents aren't always well able to provide the needs, how much more? Are we able to trust our Heavenly Father, knowing that He never worries about finances? There's never any doubt that God is going to be able to make ends meet. We can trust Him. He's sovereign. This doctrine of God's sovereignty over the human heart can lead us to rejoice as we consider the childlike faith we can then have in God's care. Second reason that this doctrine should lead us to rejoice, because it magnifies God's awesome power. Ephesians 1, 5, and 6, Paul writes, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. There's a whole lot of heady doctrine in that verse. But the simple point that i want to draw to your attention this morning is that paul is speaking about god's act in predestining us to adoption as sons and he says this is all through the praise of his glorious grace god's sovereign activity should cause us to magnify his power it should cause us to recognize his great authority and power Romans eleven thirty two and 36, through 36, as, as Paul concludes his discussion of God's actions, not only in the Exodus, but throughout redemptive history in, in choosing whom he will and saving in that way, Paul concludes by saying this, God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. Which is Paul's way I think of saying I don't understand how all this works but isn't God amazing? I think that's a safe place for us to go to. I don't understand how all this works. I don't understand completely how, how God could harden Pharaoh's heart and yet not be culpable for Pharaoh's sin and, and it can also be true that Pharaoh is responsible for hardening his own heart. I don't know how all of that works together. How unsearchable are his judgments? How inscrutable his ways. It magnifies God's awesome power. The third reason this doctrine should lead us to rejoice is because it makes it possible for us to be saved. As Jesus is speaking to the disciples in Matthew 19, he says, again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. We can give thanks, we can rejoice that God is sovereign over the human heart, because that means that God is able to change our hearts. Left to ourselves, it's impossible, but with God all things Are possible. Or as Jesus will say in another place in John's gospel, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And again, a few verses later in the same chapter of John, he says, I told you, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. As we perceive our own heart's sinfulness and the depravity of our hearts, and we realize the brokenness, we can take comfort and joy in the fact that God is sovereign. Because that makes it possible for our hearts to be changed and be saved. The fourth reason that this doctrine should lead us to rejoice is because it makes it possible for us to be assured of our salvation. It makes it possible for us to be assured of our salvation. Listen to this classic text that speaks to the assurance of salvation for the believer. You're familiar with this verse from John chapter 10. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Now, I grew up in a fundamentalist, Baptist church. It was a good church. They, they would not like the sermon that I'm preaching today, in all honesty. They would, they would probably disown me hearing what I'm saying today. That's okay. In other words, they, they, they didn't agree with what I'm saying about the idea that God is sovereign over the human heart. They would not have said it that way. But they did like this idea that, that once we are truly saved, we're held in God's hand and we can't lose our salvation. And uh, I would hear people say, and I was always the one who was just kind of listening to questions at that point rather than asking them, but I would listen to people ask the question, well, okay, Jesus says no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand, but surely they can take themselves out of the Father's hand, right? That is to say, a person who has confessed faith in Christ and, and been saved can choose to walk away from Jesus, can't they? And the response in, in, in that setting was always, well, no, it says no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And, and they would immediately say, so once you're saved, you're always saved. God holds on to you. Even you cannot take yourself out of the Father's hand. And I thought that was the right way of reading this verse. Yes, I think that's true. Even you, brothers and sisters, you cannot take yourselves out of the Father's hand. He holds you tight. But you see, there's a contradiction. In those ideas, isn't there? The idea that that you are the one who first puts you in the Father's hand, that you are the one who, in your own ability, chooses to, uh, to become one of God's children, and God has nothing to do with that. And the idea that God is the one who holds you tight, even when you want to walk away from God, those two ideas can't work together. Either God is sovereign, or he isn't. Either he is sovereign over bringing you into the family and holding you tight, or he's not sovereign over either one. If he is not sovereign over bringing you into the family, he is also not sovereign in keeping you in it. Or to put it another way, if you chose to join the family, you can choose to leave it. You have to pick one road or the other. And so what I'm trying to say to you this morning, friends, is is that this doctrine of God's sovereignty over the human heart can lead us to rejoice because it provides us with this truth that we are held safe. The hands of God. We cannot remove ourselves from God's hand. There is no rebellion which removes us from God's hand. He is in charge. He is our King. He is our Father. He holds us tight. The fifth reason that this doctrine can lead us to rejoice is because it empowers our gospel witness. Listen to what Paul says in Acts 13 48. It says, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord to eternal life believed and again in acts eighteen nine through 11 it says the lord said to paul one night in a vision do not be afraid but go on speaking and do not be silent for i am with you and no one will attack you to harm you for i have many in the city who are my people god is telling paul to go on witnessing go on sharing the gospel because there are many in the people who god has marked out for himself they're his people This is power for evangelism. Or again, in in Paul's second letter to Timothy, he says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Isn't it interesting? I've had, over the years, many Calvinistic friends who believe very firmly that God elects people to salvation, which I also believe, and they conclude from that that, therefore... It doesn't really matter what we do. God is going to save people. He's going to save his elect. So who cares what we do? But Paul here, while confessing that God elects people to salvation, says, I do everything I can for them. I do everything I can so that they will be saved. And in fact, I would argue that Paul's thinking about this is such that it is the very fact that God elects people to salvation. It is the very fact that God is sovereign over the human heart that gives Paul courage and power in his evangelism. And I think it can be true for us, too. See, I don't know about you. I don't know what your evangelistic strategies are. I don't know what your habits are when you share the gospel. I don't know how you feel about it. But if you're like me, there's a little bit of fear associated with it. There's a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of awkwardness sometimes. Maybe not if it's a good friend. And In fact, that's what I would encourage all of you to do is to simply have friends where it's not awkward to talk to them about Jesus. But, but sometimes there's an awkwardness. There's a fear. And certainly... Certainly there is a sense of, of, what if I say the wrong thing? What if I don't do a good job explaining the gospel? What if I don't do a good job uh, defending the truths that Jesus is God and that he died for our sins and he rose from the dead? What if I can't convince them? Have you ever had those thoughts when you think about telling people about Jesus? This doctrine that God is sovereign over the human heart, brothers and sisters, this alleviates you of all of that. It does. It takes all of the weight off of you. It doesn't take the responsibility away from you about sharing the gospel, but it takes away the anxiety. Because what this tells us is that it's not on you. You don't have to convince anyone, all you do is tell them the truth. And yeah, you answer their questions and, 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 you, and you seek to, to persuade and, and, and you seek to show them how their thinking is wrong. You do all those things. You see examples of Paul doing that and you see examples of that in the New Testament. But the point is, the weight of it isn't on you. God says, they're mine. He's sovereign over the human heart. And so this empowers our gospel witness. And then the sixth reason. The sixth reason that this doctrine can cause us to rejoice and this is the one that we're going to close with this morning is because when we learn to delight in god's sovereignty as a display of his glory it prepares us for how we will worship in heaven it prepares us for how we're going to worship in heaven i'm going to end my message this morning where i began where we began our service today in the book of Revelation. You can turn there if you'd like, or you can just listen again. I wanna read you a few verses from Revelation chapter five. Again, we're in the throne room of God, seeing the people of God worshiping him around the throne where the king is sitting over the throne of the universe. And we read these verses, Revelation 5, 11 and following. Then I looked and I heard and ever and the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped when we learn to delight in God's sovereignty as a display of his glory it prepares us for how we will worship in heaven sometimes when we think of heaven we think primarily in terms of the loved ones who have died in the Lord whom we will see again or we think of of the of being sinless, our sin nature being done away with and being able to worship God in perfect purity. Or we think of our bodies being healed, being resurrected without any sin or uh, without any disease or or illness or pain, which are all glories of heaven. Scripture teaches them all. I'm not denying them, but but I'm pointing out to you that the greatest glory of heaven, the greatest joy of heaven will be none of those things, but it will be the sight of the enthroned king. It will be the glory of the sovereign of the universe and I think as we begin to meditate in this truth in this life it will prepare us to rejoice in that glory in eternity too. The question is what's most important to us? Is it God's glory or is it our understanding of of our rights and our freedom? Rejoice this morning in God's power. Rejoice in his authority over sin and death. Rejoice in God's sovereignty over the human heart by which salvation comes to you. Rejoice in the work of the sovereign Holy Spirit who has opened your heart to see the beauty of Christ and drawn you to him. This morning, take a moment in silent prayer, asking God to help you rest in his revelation of his loving, fatherly, authoritative sovereign glory in your hearts worship this god whose judgments are inscrutable whose ways are unsearchable and in just a moment we will respond together in worship reminding one another of the eternal glory of our immortal and invisible and only wise god